Where is your hope? I think all of us here, whether currently trusting in Jesus or not, would recognise that there is something not quite right with the world. All of us, all of the world, we're, we're asking similar questions. Questions like this, where should I put my hope? Where can I find deliverance? Uh, and this question has many others wrapped up in it, doesn't it? It has, what do I actually need to be delivered from? What am I longing for? What is really wrong with the world? Can I fix it myself? News story after news story just leads us to cry out, what is going on? And depending what the story is, depending what the problem is, we try and come up with solutions, don't we? A virus? Trust the science. The environment? Well, let's change how we live. Cost of living? Well, we need to tax people more or tax people less. Loneliness? Well, community will fix that. Discrimination? Justice is the answer. We're all longing for the world to be fixed. We're all longing for deliverance. We're all looking for hope. Just watch any Marvel movie. I'm sure people have watched at least one. Or any movie really. And we can see this is the story our world is itching to hear. A world delivered. A world restored. A world fixed. What is the real fear? The real fear behind this great longing of our hearts? Well... We can see it in what we watch as well. I've been watching a series on Amazon Prime called Upload. I can recommend it. But it imagines a world a few years in the future where instead of dying, you can upload your consciousness into a virtual world. You can live and interact with the real world whilst in fact being physically dead. It leads to some real questions. But what it speaks to, our greatest fear death it's trying to imagine a world where there is no death that's what we truly want deliverance from we've been in acts for nearly 20 weeks in the last two years and i wonder if you've noticed the heart of paul's message is recorded by luke it's the reason he's been arrested because it's offended the jews so much he says it's here in verse six it is because of my hope in what god has promised that i'm on trial today it's an odd thing to be put on trial for. But he's been arrested because of his declaration of hope to a world crying out for hope. Where is that hope found? Well, Paul tells us. He says, I've been saying that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul's message was this. Christ rose from the dead. He beat death. Not just physical death. This is where hope is found. This is the unstoppable gospel. In Luke's first book, and we need to treat Luke and Acts as a two-parter, we see Jesus say this. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I'll show you what you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What does Jesus say our greatest fear should be? Should be standing before the one who made us, knowing we've spurned his love, knowing we've chosen to worship things other than him. That's what's to be feared more than death. That's what we really need deliverance from. 
our broken relationship with God, the prospect of eternity under his judgment is what we need deliverance from. And so Paul, as we see here in this, this final speech of his in Acts, and it's a model speech, all the speech in Acts are model speech. He gave thousands of speeches, but Luke's recorded these ones. He's edited these ones. He's chosen these ones. He's crystal clear that the resurrection tells us we can be delivered from this if we put our trust in Jesus. Paul wants us here at Town Church, if you're visiting here today, to live as a people full of hope, a people with certainty, a people with assurance. This, again, is the heart of the unstoppable gospel. I wonder if you thought, what's the purpose of Luke writing Luke and Acts? He didn't just think, I'm going to write a story about Jesus. No, he makes it really clear his purpose. In Luke 1, as I said, the first part of his two books, he says this, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants those reading this account, he wants us here today to have certainty, to have a sure and solid hope. Not hope in the way our world often talks about hope. I'm hope, I really hope. I've got a golf day tomorrow. I hope the weather's going to be good. It's not going to be good. I'm not happy. I hope. This is a sure and certain and solid hope. That is why Luke is writing Acts, to be certain of the hope we find in Christ, to be certain of a world which can be fixed, to be certain of the hope that death is not the end, to be certain of the hope of the resurrected Christ. And as we see in this story, and we'll look into it in a bit more detail, the world sees this message as madness. Festus can't help but cry out, As Paul speaks of the resurrection, you're out of your mind, Paul. You're nuts. But Paul politely replies, doesn't he? Festus, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and what I'm saying is reasonable. And if you're here today and you're visiting here today, we want to say that the Christian gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus, the message of the resurrection is true and it's reasonable. The purpose of Acts, the purpose of us here today is that we may have certainty That's why he recorded this speech, so we may have hope. So I wonder if you've been here throughout the whole series, you've been here for the last sort of 20 or so weeks, we've done it over a couple of years. Have you found this series in Acts giving you more assurance in your faith? Have you found it giving you more certainty? Our prayer is simple. It's that you might do. So let me pray now before we dive in further. Father God, we pray Help us to see and delight in the work of the risen Lord Jesus today. And Father, we pray that your word today would give us increased assurance, increased certainty, increased hope. That it may transform how we live, how we speak, how we act and how we go into the world with this wonderful message. Amen. We're going to see two things as we look at Paul. Uh, we're going to look at Acts 26 first and we'll look a little bit back at Acts 25. We're going to see how this hope transforms our witness and transforms our lives. Firstly, let's see Paul's message of hope as we see how it transforms his witness. As I said, this is the last of Paul's major speeches in Acts. And as we've seen, it comes from the Roman consul Festus. You can see him there uh, on the throne, I think. And then before King Agrippa and Bernice, who are by all accounts pretty horrific persecutors of just about anyone. Festus, as we saw, which Raquel read, is at a loss of how to proceed with Paul. He's been in jail for over two years at this point. The Jews want him dead. They've tried to just get Festus to hand him over to him and 
Festus can't do that because Paul's a Roman citizen. He doesn't know what to charge him with. Festus isn't really willing to send Paul to Rome without charge sheet. It would make him seem a fool. And as verse 19 of chapter 25 tells us, he says this. He says, they had some points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. This is the heart of why Paul's been arrested. And so Agrippa and Festus call on Paul to explain himself. And the, the way Luke writes this sort of speech from Paul, and there's lots of ways we could have approached this passage, but I'm going to approach it this way. Uh, he makes it clear we're meant to learn from Paul's sermons. We're meant to learn why he said what he said and how he said what he said it. He selected this speech, a careful number of speeches, so we may learn some, some models, some patterns of how the gospel was proclaimed, uh, how Paul defended it amongst the different audiences he spoke to. But in all of Paul's sermons, they all have a number of things in common. This is a great example for us as we look at this, as we think, and hopefully we will think of what it may be like for us to have a chance to share our stories with our friends, as Paul does here. If someone asks us why we believe in Jesus, asks us of the content of the message, this content of hope and assurance, my prayer is that we'd learn something here as we look at Acts 26. So we see sort of three key characteristics in this message and all the messages of Paul in Acts. Firstly, his message is fully God-centred. I wonder if you noticed that he told his story, he told a story of what he was like, uh, what happened on the road to Damascus and what he's doing now. Again and again, Paul points towards God's actions in history and God's actions in his own life. We've seen Paul already in Acts tell the story of his conversion. He credits it all to God. There's no, I did this and I did that, or I was a good person and then God came and said, well done, now follow me. There's none of that in Paul's story. Paul's story is humble in every way. It makes clear he was an evil man. We see that. You can testify, I was the strictest of Pharisees. They can testify how I used to persecute and kill Christians. Says that he's clear about that. He was merciless against anyone who opposed him, and yet God appeared, saved him, and called him on the Damascus Road. Why can we have hope when we see a message which is so fully God centered? What's Paul's message here of hope? Well, he's saying God is in charge of our lives totally. He's saying God saved him not because of his performance in any way. If Paul had to be saved because of his performance, he would have had absolutely no hope. I was so obsessed with persecuting them. I even hunted them down in foreign cities, Paul says in 11. He had no hope if it was based on his own performance. But Paul can have certainty and hope now. He can stand the other side of that story. And he can have certainty and hope because he knows that God chose him. He knows that God saved him. He knows that God has sent him. We see that in speech, verse 17 to 18. He says this, I will rescue you. This is what Jesus is saying to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is saved not because of anything he did, but because God chose him. And the Bible says exactly the same about us less dramatic maybe in our conversion stories but still no less special totally god-centered we see it throughout acts how god is totally in control of paul's life he's in control of our lives he's been from the moment we were conceived we see that in how paul tells his story how he lives now he recognizes he delights in the fact that his salvation is all of god's work 
and matters a message which gives him and gives us hope. So all his speeches are God-centered. All his messages are Christ-focused. The goal of all of Paul's messages is always to present Christ. The goal of all our messages at Town Church Vista is always to present Christ. To present Christ's life, his death. And here in Acts, we see the focus is most important on his resurrection. See in verse 8, he presents the logic of this initially. Paul's not, not afraid of using sort of human logical arguments. Verse 8, he's speaking to Festus. He's speaking to Agrippa. And he says it's been promised for, forever. It's been promised for our ancestors. That's why he's on trial. It's been promised to our 12 tribes. They're hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. It's because of his hope that the Jews are accusing me. What is that hope? That hope is a resurrection of the dead. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead, Paul says? Paul is is outlined just a really logical argument here. If God is God, he can raise the dead. If God is God and he can do that, then we have a hope to be raised ourselves. And that's where he finds his hope. He's using a a pretty logical argument. It's clear and helpful sometimes with our friends to use that. People may say, I can find the resurrection impossible. I've used that a number of times in conversation to go, well, suspend whether you believe in God or not, but if he is God, he can do this. And then he goes on in verse 22 to present Christ. He says this, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. He speaks back to what's been predicted. The Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul keeps coming back to present the resurrection. Why? Because it is the groundbreaking hope at the heart of the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. It's pointless. It's mad. Friends, I said this on Easter Sunday, if you're here, and I say it again. If you are here and listening in, maybe for the first time, maybe even coming to town church for many Sundays, but haven't yet put your trust in Christ, the whole Christian faith stands and falls on whether Christ rose from the dead. Without it, we just worship a dead man. We will die and we will stay dead people. Because of Jesus, though, this is why Paul puts all his eggs in this basket of the resurrection, why he said this is the hope he's preaching. Because of what we believe of the resurrection, this is why there's hope for us. Why we believe there's deliverance from death. Theophilus, who is reading this, can read this. He can read the story of Jesus. He can read the story of the church exploding off the back of the resurrection. And he can be assured, he can have certainty that God's plan of salvation is being carried out according to his promises. Because he's being told here that Jesus is reigning now. And so can we. We can have hope, sure and certain hope. The certainty of death because of the resurrection has been shattered. It's been transformed by Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, as all of Paul's speeches do, reminds us we cannot deliver ourselves. That is good news. Reminds us that we need him to save us, that we need him to die for us. Paul is crystal clear in his letters on this clear point. Jesus was delivered over to death so we can be delivered from death. When he died on the cross, he he took on God's wrath for sin on himself and in the resurrection he's vindicated the empty tomb is God's seal of approval on Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf it shows us nothing we need to do it shows it is finished and Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection in the future it gives us hope for life beyond death and it totally transforms our lives now how? 
Because of it, we can experience forgiveness now. We know our sin has been paid for as far as east is from the west, as we sang. We can have our shame taken away now. We can have the joy of reconciliation with God and others now. You can see in Paul's life, and we'll see it in a minute, he was so gripped by the resurrection, it transformed all of his life. Is that reality for us as well? Do we live day to day as if a resurrection really happened? Do we let it transform us? Do we let the implications of it transform us? Do we let it change our attitudes, our thoughts, our feelings, our trust in God? I don't know if, like me, you've witnessed it. Have you ever been to a funeral service of a dear friend who died loving Jesus? I vividly remember the funeral about, I don't know, it's been seven or eight years ago, a wonderful 90-year-old saint called Gwen. I loved her dearly. She loved the Lord deeply. Some sense is an incredibly sad day, but real deep joy, thanksgiving, hope, certain hope. I remember chatting about my mum afterwards and she was in tears. She was like, I miss her so much. My mum, my mum's best friend, really. I miss her so much, but I know I'm going to see her again. I can't wait for that day. This hope isn't based on wishful thinking. This hope which Paul has, this hope which we can have, is not based on wishful thinking. But what Luke has done, the certainty he's tried to outline, is based on the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came back from the dead and he promised everlasting life to all who know him. For a world which is just searching, crying out for hope, hopefully you'll notice it now as you listen to Whatever you listen to, you watch whatever you watch, you read whatever you read, it's crying out for hope. It's searching for deliverance. This is wonderfully good news. Paul's message always presents this clearly because it is so essential. It's always Christ-focused, focused on the resurrected Christ. And then he always does one more thing. Paul always has messages which provoke a response. Throughout Acts, we've seen this. He doesn't let someone listen and think, well, that's good for you, but has no impact on me. He adapts his message to his audience. He does that very cleverly, whilst he always keeps Christ central. And then he calls for a response. Notice at the end of sort of chapter 26, we saw it here. He proclaims Christ risen and Festus interrupts him. He calls him mad. And Paul then cleverly looks at Agrippa. Agrippa was the, the, the Roman appointed Jewish leader, a brutal man, but one who had lived during the last days of Jesus, the time of the apostles. His father was Herod the Great. Look at what Paul says. He says, Agrippa, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Ask him a question. He says, Agrippa, you've seen this happen. Agrippa, you've seen the church grow. You're convinced. Well, you've seen the church grow because they're convinced in the resurrection of Jesus. You've seen people willing to die to defend this truth. And so he tries to provoke a response in Agrippa. Agrippa's clever. He clocks what Paul's doing and he shuts him down. He, he knows if he says he believes in the prophet, then Paul will just call him to trust in Christ. And he knows if he says he doesn't believe in the prophets, well, he's the Jewish leader. He can't say that. It's always the anarchy. So he squirms and Paul's response is beautiful. Agrippa goes on the attack. He says, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul? What a prayer. It's my prayer. It's our prayer. My prayer is it'll be our prayer. Short time or long, Agrippa. 
I pray to God, but not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. What a prayer from Paul. That's why it's always appropriate to call on people to respond to the gospel message. It's God who saves people. We know that. But he calls on us to call for a response. It's why he sent Paul here. We see that in his testimony here. Paul always spoke to provoke people to trust in Jesus. He didn't just leave it. So right now, I'm not going to leave it. If you're here today, if you don't believe, you you may have been coming for years to town church. And in in your heart of hearts, you know you're just not trusting in Jesus. What do you need to be able to believe in Jesus and put your trust in him? It's really simple. You say, God, I'm sorry. I admit that I'm wrong, but I need you. Say that short prayer. Something is stopping you. Please do come and speak to one of us, like myself or Lanks or the friend you're here with. The gospel demands a response. Our prayer, my prayer, is that all listening here today may become what I am. I don't have chains, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's Paul's message. It's consistent throughout all of Acts. If you want to go back and look at his speeches, we see they're God-centred. They are Christ-filled and they always provoke a response. Finally, then we see, that's his message, and then we see Paul living out his hope. Paul living out his hope, because this is his life. His life is not just words. It's not just speech. And, and God doesn't just call us to change how we speak. or He calls to change all of our lives. All of our lives are transformed as we live in light of this hope. And we see Paul do that. In, in chapter 25, throughout the whole of Acts, we see him unfairly accused. We see him in prison, we see him spat at, we see him whipped, we see him flogged, we see him abused, we see him questioned. There's a little line at the end of chapter 24. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. At this point, Paul's been in prison over two years. And again and again, they can't find anything to stick him with. He's utterly innocent. So how does Paul keep going? It may seem so far off this. Paul just seems a foreign character. We go, this world is nothing like us. Persecution may seem a long way away from us here in Bista today. But pressure certainly isn't far away. The pressure to say nothing when your colleagues or friends criticise Jesus. The, The pressure to not stand out, to pretend to not be a Christian. The pressure to leave out some parts of what we believe. How can we stand firm in the midst of pressure? Well, Paul did this, and how he did this is directly related to the message of hope which he shared. We see two main ways he was put under pressure in chapter 25. We didn't have it read, but I'll I'll draw them out for you. Two main ways, which may be ways which we find ourselves in in the future. We see him unfairly accused. See Paul there shouting that he's innocent. He was in prison without charge. How did he cope? How did he not just cope, but how did he thrive? I think he just believed his message he was preaching. He looked to Christ's completed work. He looked to our union with Christ, our joining with Christ in his death and resurrection, the promises of the resurrection, and he let that give him joy and assurance. In the book of Romans, a book written whilst he was in prison, he says this, seemingly about this sort of situation. What then shall we say in response to these things, these accusations. If God is for us, who can be against us? God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a testimony. He doesn't let his circumstances let him question God's goodness. Paul was assured, and we can be too, of God's love. He was secure in his future as secured by the resurrection. He had certain hope. How does he find that? We saw that. He looks to Christ's death, his completed work on the cross, and his resurrection proves his death has been defeated, his sins have been forgiven. That is where we can look to when we're under pressure, to remind us of God's amazing, secure love. Where can we also look? Well, we can also look to Jesus' life when we're under pressure. As I'm sure Paul did, the greatest example of godly behaviour when falsely accused. Jesus did no wrong and yet was beaten to a pulp for his crimes. Jesus did no wrong and yet he did not shout back. Jesus did no wrong and yet he bled and died upon a cross. And what did he say on that cross? As people spat at him and mocked him, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. I don't know what it's like for you at work or at home or with your family, but if you're ever under real pressure for your faith, this is our example. We trust in the one who promises justice against the persecutors and we trust in the one who loves us in all circumstances, whose love we cannot be separated from. So we see Paul stand up against false accusations. We finally see what it's like when he's called crazy. You're out of your mind, Paul. Festus shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. Today, you're probably the opposite. You're out of your mind. You're ignorant. You're uneducated. You're just stupid. All of history, this has been the call to Christians. It's probably one you've heard yourselves. You're mad to believe in a resurrected Jesus. You can't think that in the 21st century, can you? Surely, you know, that's a ridiculous position to hold now. We know so much more now. How can you still believe in Jesus? Science has disproved that. You know that, don't you? The world has always thought that the pools of the world are mad. That those who believe this are mad. That the majority of us in the room are mad. So how can Paul stay steadfast when being questioned like this? How can we? Well, he's certain that what he believes is true and reasonable. And that it makes sense. Do we? Do we get into conversations and duck out of them because we worry how people might react? Do we avoid any conversations about our faith because we think people will give us a look and go, really? We need to declare that the things the world trusts in are mad. We need to clock that. We need to trust this, that what we believe is true and reasonable. The world tells us that hope can be found in possessions. They waste away. It tells the hope can be found in power be lost instantly it's not true power to be focused on wealth or power or science or pleasure is not crazy to the world but to be focused on spiritual things is called madness 
But we want to say, we want to declare that sanity lies with the pools of this world. Those who build their lives on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states this so clearly in 2 Corinthians. He says, and this is how he copes, this light and momentary affliction. See how his, his eyes are focused on the hope of heaven. It's a light, it's a momentary affliction. This mocking, this questioning is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen and eternal. It is mad, and we need to say it, it is mad to live as the majority of the world does, as though hope is found in what we can see and what we can taste and what we can touch, which never really delivers. We trust in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and that gives us hope. We'll discuss these in a minute, but two questions. Two questions and implications. How will the certainty of the hope of the resurrection change how we live? Will we let the words of Paul that are focusing on the resurrection bring us assurance, bring us certainty, bring us real hope, which changes how we live? How differently would our day-to-day lives be if we lived as if the resurrection was really true? Like, really true. How would it change how you work, how, how you think, how you study, how you parent, how you speak? How would it change your attitudes, how you cope with suffering, which is inevitable in this world, how you cope with success, which occasionally happens? How will you let the resurrection affect how you live? And finally, who will we go to with this message of hope? We've seen it, our memory verse, Acts 1 verse 8. The commission of Acts 1 is for us to go in the power of the Spirit as his witnesses. A certainty in the gospel, a certainty in this hope will give us the confidence to go. Just finally, read with me again. Jesus is commissioned to Paul in verse 17. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He doesn't say to Paul, leave it to other people. He doesn't say, leave it to the institution of the church. He says, no, no, you go. I'm sending you to go. I'm the one who rescues. He's clear on that. God says, I rescue, but you go. At Town Church, we want Paul's prayer to be our prayer. Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today will become what I am, except for these change. Our, Our ministry at Town Church must be a go and tell mission, not mainly a come and see one. Today in this room, we've got, I know, 30, 40 people who are scattered already, scattered into 30 or 40 different streets, different workplaces, different schools. And we're sent to go, sent to go and tell the good news of Jesus, as Paul was, with confidence to speak of his wonderful hope. We're sent to go to Langford and Southwold. We're sent to go to Orchester Running Club, to Curlington Mums and Toddlers Group. We're sent to go to Cooper School, to Longfields Primary. We're sent to go to the Bell and those who hang out at Costa. We're sent to go to the food bank and the fridge. We're sent to go whoever is near us, to those who live next to us, to those who live around the corner from us, to those who wait at the school gates with us. We're sent to go with this good news, this amazing message of hope. So the question is, are we going? Maybe uncomfortable. We go assured of God's love for us, assured we don't need to perform, but we go with this wonderful message of hope. So some uncomfortable questions. Who are we hanging out with? Who are we praying this prayer of Paul for? 
Opportunities to share so often come following time spent with others. When we listen to them, we ask them questions. Who are we spending time with? Where are we carving out time in our diary for that? Where are we reprioritizing if we need to? Where are we building friendships in Bista? Praying they may become what we are. The aim of Acts is that we would have certainty, that we would have assurance, and that's been my aim today, that we may think and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our crucified Saviour, our risen Saviour, and it might give us hope. That we would delight and praise him for the blessings he's secured by his resurrection. That's what Acts is all about. Telling us about these blessings, the blessings now of the Holy Spirit, the blessing longer to fear death. We see that in Paul's life. Our world's greatest problem the blessing of living life with eternity secured. As we grasp that, my prayer is we would grasp that, that hope, we then go and speak of him, of this hope. Trusting in this hope transforms our witnesses, it is Paul, and it transforms our lives, as we've seen here. Most of us won't be doing it in front of kings and governors as Paul did, but we will amongst our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. Let's be a people who pray and work towards opportunities where people ask us, where is your hope? Where is your hope? And that we can't help but clearly say our hope is found in Jesus. Can I tell you about him? My prayer is we'd have those opportunities this week. I would have these opportunities for the rest of time that the Lord allows Town Church to function. We'd continue to offer people hope because it transforms everything. Let me pray and we're going to sing. Father God, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus. You know our greatest problem. You know the world's greatest problem is eternal separation from you. Is death, spiritual death. But in your great love, you acted. It wasn't us who acted, you acted, Lord, and sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place and then to rise again, to beat death. And you reign now in heaven. And we look forward to that wonderful day for some of us relatively soon, for others of us, who knows when, when we will be with you in glory. Lord, let us be a people who live in light of that sure and certain hope. Pray you'd apply this word to our lives. It would change how we think. It would change what we do. Change how we act. Help us to meditate on the wonderful, completed work of the Lord Jesus. And may it cause our hearts to worship and cause us to have certainty that transforms the communities we're part of the places we live, the places we work, the places we study, wherever we might be, Lord. That we may go and offer out this wonderful word of hope. It's for your glory and yours alone. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.